Welcome to another episode of Hurdle. I am Emily Abadi. This week, I'm chatting with Golden Harper. He's the founder of a shoe company called Ultra, which if you've been listening to Hurdle over the past few months, well, you know a little bit about him by now. Harper's hurdle moment came right as he was taking a leap of faith to get the brand off the ground. He found himself in a snowboard accident, which left him in rough shape, unable to walk, nevertheless run. Today, we're chatting all about how that crazy, horrifying experience made him stronger both mentally and physically. Quick thank you to the sponsor of today's episode, Pluto Pillow. Guys, if you know anything about me, it's that I am an early riser super early, like 5.30 a.m. kind of thing, which means that I try to get to bed early too. I really prioritize my sleep and getting good sleep has a lot to do with what you're sleeping on. Pluto pillows are individually personalized to your data and designed with a foam inner core and plush outer cover, which means that there's no need to sacrifice support for cushioning comfort. Go to plutopillow.com, that's P-L-U-T-O, to answer a quick questionnaire and receive a pillow built just for you the best part? Make sure to enter the code HURDLE for $20 off. Again, that's PlutoPillow.com. A little housekeeping on my end, exciting housekeeping. We are just two weeks away from Hurdle Live, a panel talk on self-love with some of the rad guests from the podcast's first 10 episodes. How insane is it? We're already up to episode 10. (laughs) Hurdle Live is at the Arlo Nomad Hotel on May 8th at 6.30 p.m. I'll be sitting down with Fred Santarpia, the chief digital officer at Condé Nast, Alex Silverfagan, Nike master trainer, Adam Callen, co-founder of Jane Motorcycles, Sarah Levy, the badass babe behind Y7 Studio, and Candace Huffine, model and creator of Day One. Huge thanks to my friends at the Arlo Hotel for helping me make this all possible. I am so, 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 so excited. If you are not already, also make sure that you are subscribed to Hurdle in the iTunes store and follow the pod on social media at Hurdle Podcast. And last but not least, if you like getting good deals, listen up. (laughs) In honor of Golden Stint on today's episode, Ultra's offering an exclusive discount to Hurdle listeners. Good for 50% off retail value on their site, ultrarunning.com. Use the promo code ULTRA for Hurdle. Again, that's ULTRA for Hurdle, A-L-T-R-A-F-O-R-H-U-R-D-L-E to get your deal. (laughs) Head on over there, ultrarunning.com, snag yourself some kicks. And that's it. With that, Let's get to hurdling. So today I'm sitting here with Golden Harper. Golden, what's going on? Hey, just hanging out in Park City. Park City. I know. This is a this is a fun little uh experiment for hurdle on the road indeed tell me a little bit about your shtick golden uh yeah i started a uh, a shoe company called ultra Mm -hmm. um trying to make shoes based on uh scientific uh, research instead of on marketing so basically every other shoe company has been uh built on performance and marketing and and hasn't really ever focused on the injury side of things and what this you know the way science says shoes should be built in my opinion so so when you make a shoe that is designed based on science instead of marketing what is a consumer going to see that is different in that shoe there's probably two main things first thing we do is we make shoes that are level from heel to forefoot you're born that way you get up every morning that way we call it zero drop meaning that the the shoe doesn't drop from the heel down to the forefoot um and you know this is just the way we come i call it oem human you know like this is just like natural human when you get out of bed in the morning boom you're zero drop you know and so we try not to jack with that and then the second thing is that uh something that people never think about is that shoes are not shaped like healthy human feet um feet are naturally pretty square shaped and um shoes are pretty you know, fairly pointy, even athletic shoes, you know, you think like, oh no, they're, they're comfortable or whatever, but they're not shaped like your feet, you know, stick a healthy foot down next to a shoe. Those are two very different shapes. And it goes all the way back to preschool, you know, don't put the square shape in the triangle hole, you know, and then, you know, we take, take our kids or whatever, and we, we put them in these shoes and we wonder why their feet start to hurt. And you look at 
there's a billion people on earth with that don't wear modern footwear they go barefoot or they wear primitive sandals zero chronic foot conditions no plantar fasciosis no bunions no neuromas you know heel spurs like none of this stuff that plagues us you know and you know here in america 73 percent of us report foot pain every single day uh, or every single year so it's just a, a huge number three out of four of us and chronic foot conditions and foot pain itself are caused by shoes and unfortunately in america we spend 28 billion dollars every year on pad surgeries and treatments to help relieve pain that was caused by our shoes that we spent $26 billion on. Is that uh, the number really? $26 yeah. billion dollars yeah, in the market? $26 billion on shoes. And then we spend $28 billion on just stuff to fix the damage that our shoes are doing to our bodies. And because it's so slow and over time, um, you know, people don't notice that the shape of their foot is changing or that they're getting a bunion or that they're having a neuroma form or whatever. And, you know, then you wake up one day and it's like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm really, you know, kind of messed up. Wow. So, this is a totally normal thing just to decide one day you're like, I'm going to try to start this company that is completely different than every single other athletic footwear company out there. It's insane. It is insane. I fought the urge for like a year and a half. What really drove you in the first place to say, not only do I want to find a solution for this problem that you found, but then I'm going to create a footwear company based on this? Uh, first question. So, um, my dad was actually working for Nike when I was born and we opened a running store when I was nine. And so I had been working in this running store up until the time I went to college. And when I went to college, I wanted to, um, I wanted to research shoes and injuries so I could better help the customers that came into my store. Um, because you start to realize after you've worked in a running store or a shoe store long enough that most people come in to buy shoes because something hurts, something's broken, something's off. And you, if you care, you want to, you want to be able to fix them. So I thought I'll go study that in college. I get into college and I start researching shoes and, and injuries and running technique and all this stuff. And I realize like, oh my gosh, everything I've been taught by all the shoe companies is total bullcrap. Like, like it has no scientific, ba you know, basis behind it whatsoever. I've been lying to people my whole life, and it was really frustrating. You know, like it was like always like, oh, you have a knee problem? Let me get you a shoe with lots of gel or lots of air. And where the science shows that like cushioning technologies actually magnify forces on the joints. You know, they make it harder on your body. Checking all that stuff out that made me want to build shoes that were actually based on what you know these podiatrists and researchers had been saying and suggesting shoes should be made like. So how does someone go from wanting to do that to actually doing that? I mean, I'm assuming you had to first come up with a footprint, pun intended, mm. of what this could look like in practice. And then, of course, next up is finding funding for a project like this. Yeah. So initially, um, I, I used my uh, staff as guinea pigs at the store. So I actually made uh, the first prototype shoe in my toaster oven. Um, so we were watching people run at our store and we, we would teach everybody how to run uh, in efficient way that protects their body. And as we started videoing people with slow motion, that technology came available just over 10 years ago. And we start watching people in slow motion. We see people run completely differently in the shoes we were selling them than they do in like a you know cross country flat or a racing shoe or something that's barely there um, or when they don't have shoes on at all. And my dad's comment was, he was like, I teach everyone in here a lesson on how to protect their body when they run. And then it looks like I sell them a pair of shoes that undoes everything I teach them every single time I go out there. And that was a really sobering moment. You know, it was like, it was a really frustrating moment too. And as I'm watching the video, I can see like the heels start to drag as it swings out in front of the body. And then it catches a couple inches early. And just this light bulb is like, well, yeah, look at the way the shoe's built. It's twice as heavy in the heel. It's twice as thick in the heel. Like, of course, it's going to change the way the body wants to move. And uh, that's when I went home, popped a pair of shoes in the toaster oven, ripped the sole out of there, took the rubber off, put in some level, you know, weight balanced pieces of foam, glued the rubber back on, went for a run and, and started filming things and then guinea pigging my staff at the store. And then that worked and we, you know, started somehow some customer found out about it and some guy that had had knee problems forever and couldn't fix them. And he's like, well, I'm willing to try anything. I'll try those ugly shoes and puts them on and 
you know, were like, okay, just don't tell anybody about this, you know. So wait, were these the same shoes that you made in the toaster that the guy took to <laughs> run outside? Uh, I believe this first one, I don't know if it was my toaster oven shoe because we started making shoes with uh, this shoemaker down the street where he would just uh, cut into and level out our kind of like best-selling shoes in the store. I've got to ask you, like what brand were these shoes that you were toasting? The first pair of shoes I put in the toaster oven was an Innovate shoe. Um, the shoes that I did my initial 25 pair on my staff were the original 1984 Saucony Jazzes. Wow. We called them the Jazzy Zeros. The Jazzy Zeros. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you start toasting shoes. You find that there are people that are down with the toasted shoes. When do you go uh, in your mind that you're thinking, maybe it's about time I stop toasting the shoes and instead start looking into ways to actually produce these in a legitimate fashion. Yes. Yeah, so what happened is we sold a thousand pair of these modified shoes the first year. So that one guy told his friend who told a friend who told a friend and it just it got like fight club. People are coming into the store like, hey, I want to try the zero drop shoes. And we're like, oh, there's no such thing. And they're like, oh, we know they're back there. You know, and we're like, OK, what's the password? <laughs> and, <laughs> were you so, just buying these Saucony shoes in bulk? No. So what we started doing is we were taking the best selling shoes in our store yeah. and we started we started having the shoemaker down the road hack those up. And so we had a variety of different shoes, road shoes, trail shoes, our best selling models in the store. And these are what people were coming in and we would actually have them. You know, we, we figured we were going to get sued pretty quick. And yeah. so we had a full like size run that they could try. And then we'd give them a fresh pair and we would either take them to the shoemaker and have him modify them and then pick them up and pay for them or they would do it themselves. Um, and what and, was the what was the cost overhead on like buying the shoe, doing the shoemaker and selling them again? So we didn't really try to make any money on this. So, in fact, we didn't make any money on it. We just most of them, we just hadn't paid the shoemaker directly or we charged them exactly what he charged us. Because for us, it was an experiment on whether this worked. And so we actually got a thousand pairs of shoes sold that first year. And we gave surveys out and we paid people 10 bucks to come back and tell us what happened. What hurts more? What hurts less? How are you landing different? What muscles are you using differently? Like the whole rundown. And there was no bias because, you know, we didn't care. It was just like, okay, what's good? What's bad? Well, you know, what's working? What's not working? And what we found is we had five like major areas that it helped with and low back issues like really stuck out. We had the number of like 300 pound dudes that came in that were not runners, you know, that got these shoes leveled out to pull pressure off their lower back was insane and would go into the shoemaker and get all their shoes leveled off, you know, their dress shoes, hack the heels off, you know. And then we found plantar fasciosis, which is a, a big one for runners, shin splints, runner's knee, and IT band issues. Those were the four we saw like overwhelming success with. And so we took these surveys and I didn't want to start a shoe company. So I just went to, we had good connections in the shoe industry. Um, and so we just took the, the surveys to the shoe companies and said, hey, when you build shoes like this, when you get that heavy elevated heel out of the shoe and you expand the toe box to make it look like a foot, then these injuries go away and we have the proof. You know, we have a thousand, you know, people and all these surveys worth. And we don't want any money for the idea. Just build the shoes so we can sell them at our store. But that's kind of an insane proposition because you without really realizing it, have a very uh, feasible money-making concept in your hand. Yeah, I didn't see it that way. You, you know, just wanted I, people to be better. Yeah, that's all. That was it. Fix people. So something I also think that's important to mention right here before we kind of head into uh, your big hurdle moment, as I know it, is that Golden also grew up a runner, as he mentioned. Golden is the Guinness world record holder for uh, the marathon time at age 12. Yeah. So I think that I've had a lot of great people on the podcast so far, but Golden is by far uh, the most active before he hits the hurdle moment. <laughs> <laughs> like were your parents like, yeah, you should go run a marathon at age 12. I, no. When I was, when I was 12, <laughs> my dad was making me like egg sandwiches on Sunday mornings and we were like leisurely walking through our town trail. Oh yeah. I was not normal. Actually, I came in last, <laughs> literally last place in a 5K with my dad at age 12. But you were out there. It's very true. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was I was a strange child, obviously. So I wanted to run when I was nine. And they were like, uh, no, that's insane. You can't do that. And what happened that year is the youngest runner in the race got this um, trophy. 
this uh, performance of the day trophy six feet tall. I'm like three feet tall. And I'm like, if you would have let me run that race, I would have got that huge trophy about three octaves higher, you know? And they were like, <laughs> okay, fine. If you run next year, you know, if you, if you train and like, if you do rim to rim in the Grand Canyon and run to the top of Mount Timpanogos, in fact, these things are harder than a marathon, you know, then we'll let you run the marathon. I think they were thinking they would dissuade me. They really underestimated three foot me, six foot, six foot tall trophy, you know, just <laughs> like think about that. And so I ran my first marathon as a 10 year old. Uh, three hours and eight minutes. And I didn't get the trophy. Did they? Okay, two questions. Yeah. The three hours and eight minutes just totally tripped me up. What kind of pace is that? That's about seven minutes a mile. A seven minute mile at 10 years old. Also, did your parents run those other outrageous things they threw in your face to tell you if you do these things, you can run the marathon? Yes. Wow. And, and we did it all. So there were like, you know, four marathonish things we had to do before the marathon and, and, and they went and the did them and i came, came along and uh yeah so 308 yeah. people run all of their lives looking for a 308 and you did it at age 10. i know i kind of hate talking about it because people get pissed okay so then what happened at age 12. uh so i didn't get the trophy when i was 11 either it ran faster so my thought process was like oh i'm not impressive enough right um, this is really great for a child's self-esteem right yeah. So, yeah. So at age 12, I'm like, you know, I didn't know like, you know, state record, national record, whatever. And those first two years. And so this third year, I, I just try to get the big trophy. Run really fast. 245 world best. Never got the trophy. I ran faster the next the next year as well. Um, I never got this giant trophy, but it was the thing that motivated me. Do you have a trophy now in your house? I never got that six foot tall one. And frankly, looking back at it, I'm kind of glad I'm like, I've got like a little plaque that hangs on my wall and it's, it's nice. You know, I don't know what I'd do with a six foot tall trophy. I don't know. It's 2018. Maybe someone's going to get you one for Christmas this year after hearing this <laughs> podcast. Fast forward, you are having this amazing sneaker concept uh, much later. And then something happens that kind of throws you on your ass. What happens? Yeah, literally, actually, uh, I was, I was snowboarding. Uh, had a, you know, I went a lot in the winter and it was right while all this stuff was happening. Um, just starting up the shoe company, uh, all the shoe companies had told me, no, we're not going to build that. And after a year of like sitting around hacking up shoes forever, it was like, a, you know, I ended up getting kind of pulled into it with my cousin and we decided to go after this thing. And so debt is stacking up. It looks impossible. It's, it's completely insane. Nobody does this. We've had the same seven big running shoe companies since the beginning of time. And so I'm deep in debt. It's just like not working. It's crazy hard. And I'm out snowboarding, snowboarding to kind of clear my mind and, and just like clear the air. And I decide like, you know, I want to do the train park a little bit more. And so I'm, I'm in there and I, I'm, my fear factor is not as high as it should be. And I hit a pipe that you could call a hurdle, uh, doing a flip going about 30 miles an hour. And so I, you know, traveled another 30 feet through the air, landed on my head and my shoulder, separated my AC joint, and then my snowboard and my legs came back, accordion back behind my head and hit the ground behind me and stretched, you know, my glutes, my hamstrings and everything in between as far as possible, basically just ripped everything, you know, and, um, and that was, that was kind of it for me being active for quite a while. Right when it happened, did you know, like, this is, this is bad? Oh, yeah. No, it hurt. Like, like well, I, bl I blacked out when it happened. My helmet, you know, cracked. Um, and luckily, you know, I had the helmet on. Uh, I knew my shoulder was super jacked. It was just excruciating. And then um, I could walk, you know, so I, I knew, like, something was, was super, super bad. How long were you down and out for from uh, walking? It's only... Only a few days to a couple of weeks that I really couldn't walk, no, you know, walk, I guess. I probably didn't walk normal for maybe a month. And then it was just kind of a long road back from there. You know, and frankly, I'm still not all the way back. You know, I had shoulder surgery last year um, that they couldn't quite fix everything. Um, and then the legs are coming back, but they're not perfect. So it's been a long road. What does this really do for your frame of mind in terms of the things that you have been working on? I mean, I'm sure 
being put in that situation, you are kind of forced to really evaluate what you have going on in your life and also probably the people you have in your life. Yeah. Well, the previous fall, I had just graduated from college. I ran my first ultra marathon. Where did you go to college? Uh, BYU and BYU Hawaii. And I was super successful with this first 50 mile race I did. And so you can imagine the amount of time being spent there. And then I'm working like, you know, a, a lot to get this, this uh, shoe company off the ground, get ultra off the ground. And um, now I can't run. I got all this time. Boom, laser focus. And it just happened to be the right time like for me to focus on like where I needed more time to really get the shoe company off the ground. And so what it did is it just got me laser focused on what would become ultra. Um, and 80 hour work weeks became the norm for, you know, the next couple of years. As a guy who, uh, as, who, as a guy who majored in exercise sciences, how does that guy go to being, you know, so knowledgeable about business to creating this company? Uh, I had been managing our shoe store off and on for several years, you know, even since I was pr pre-college. Um, so I had a lot of management experience and uh, I think, you know, the business side of things mostly comes naturally to me. Uh, and I'm, I'm a big like abundance karma believer. So like you throw good stuff out into the world and good stuff comes back to you and you always like make the right decision for everyone. And ultimately, that's going to come back and be good for you. And so I've kind of always abided by those principles, which is really different than maybe the business world as a whole. But I always saw it work. And my dad was like the ultimate example of this. You know, if he had to give shoes away, he would do it. Whatever it took to like just do the right thing, he would always do it. And it always came back good for us, you know, and it, it could be 10 years later, but it always came back. And I just kind of took that. And I mean, I, I was like, you know, one credit short of a business management minor. So I did, did do business um, in school and had a business management emphasis on my degree as well. How does someone who so strongly believes in karma really feel after an accident like that? Um, I don't know. That's like, I mean, I'm, I'm a really religious person as well. I just, I really believe that there's a plan for all of us and that you know, not to be like the lame, everything happens for a reason kind of thing. Like we do choose our own way. And I believe that we're allowed to choose that path. And, um, you know, you like if you have kids, you have to let them learn. You have to let them go out there and experience things. You can't like, you know, walk them through everything and, and tell them exactly how to do things. And and I feel like, you know, if you believe in God or whatever, that it's the same way there. God can't just hold our hands and make us do everything right. Like we have to like learn through our own experiences and we choose those things, but I still think there's a plan for all of us. And so part of that is that like the more good we give, you know, the more good I expect, you know, should come back. And it just makes sense when you think about it. And I like, my name's golden and I really believe in the golden rule and, and whatnot, you know, like, really like treat others the way you would want to be treated or, or better, you know? And I just think that when you do that, things, things work out in the end, even when they don't make any business sense or any other sense or whatever it happens to be. So you're kind of bedridden. You're starting to walk a little bit. You're certainly not running. I mean, I was sidelined last year with a little bit of arthritis in my lower back and I had to really fall back from both running, but lifting, all of the things. And it was really hard. And it was, you know, I could do enough things for you. You are walking instead of running. How did that change? How did that change things for you? Yeah, I virtually lost everything that I love to do. Um, which, you know, people who aren't active probably won't understand this. But it, it was a 100% complete lifestyle change and really jacks with like the way your mind works too. Because if you're used to being active and you love the outdoors, and for me, like I'm a mountain climber. I love to be on top of a big mountain, you know. And um, But what happened is it allowed me to channel that energy into focusing on other people as in like let's create the best shoes ever to keep people from getting hurt to get rid of foot conditions to get rid of foot problems to make a lot of these common running injuries a thing of the past things that don't have to happen and at the same time i, I met my future wife right after that 
um, started dating her as well. And so I had these kind of two places to channel all that energy that I was using. And you could say like it was a little selfish before. It was like, you know, um, I mean, they're good pursuits, you know, being active and and being outdoors. These are good things. But um, now I'm like putting all this energy into building something that I hope is great for everyone else. And I'm putting all this energy into you know, really doing nice things for this person that would eventually become my wife. So where did you meet her? Um, we met at church, actually. Yeah. You know, but they... we lost contact. This is the best part. We re-met and started dating again at a race that I had showed up. The shoes had just come out. They were brand new on the market. And I'm there at this little 5K in my hometown with just like a spread of shoes on a table and her and her you know, mom and her brother walk up and I'm like, oh, hey, what's up? You know, and we had we'd gone on one date like, you know, seven months earlier or whatever and had lost contact or whatever. And and her brother was like, you really need to date him. And then a couple <laughs> months later, we an entrepreneur. Dating. Yeah, it was crazy. So. <laughs> you go full head on into this shoe company. You are not 100 percent. And when does the shoe company really start to take off for you? As far as like me being committed to it or as far as shoe selling like hotcakes? I mean, were you ever not committed to it from no, the point after like your accident? all in. Like yeah. this was like do or die. We're going to go a million dollars in debt and, you know, it's all going to happen. So because uh, I believed in it. Like yeah. I knew it worked. We'd seen it. We had a thousand people buy freaking hacked up shoes and we had the surveys. Like we knew it was effective. We knew it helped people. And so when you know that, like it's like you know, whatever, we're just going to do it. And we know it's going to work. And who cares if everybody in the industry says that it's not, and who cares if no one's done it before we're, we're going to, we're going to create change for the better. And so, uh, I still remember me and my buddy, Brian and my cousin, Jeremy go to the outdoor retailer show. We have 10 feet by six feet. What's the outdoor retailer this show? Is the biggest like show for any kind of outdoor and active brands, you know, basically in the world, I, I would say, you know, at least in America. And it's like an expo? It's an expo. So, uh, you know, stores like outdoor stores and running stores and any any kind of active type of stores come to this to like check out, you know, stuff, mostly cool stuff from big brands. And here we are in this 10 foot by six foot booth with a shoe and like, and people just like would put the shoe on and they're like, these are you know, they look different because if, if you've seen our shoes, they look like feet, you know, at first, um, like a foot in a sock got traced because that's how we came up with the shape. And, you know, they're like, oh, they look really weird. And then they put them on. They're like, wow, that's really comfortable. And we had this like pretty amazing response. And we go to this show called The Running Event. And The Running Event is where all basically the running stores in America come to one place for one, you know, for a few days every year. And so you get to, to see all these running stores. And we had 25 running stores place like decent sized orders for shoes, which was incredible because the shoes didn't even exist yet. It was a Ponzi scheme. Like, you know? What year are we in here? End of 2010. And you're walking fine now. Uh, this is like, this is like a year after the accident yeah, uh -huh. up to this point. So yeah, I'm walking and I'm kind of running a little bit, but I'm back of the pack. I can't even, I mean, I feel like everyone obviously goes through emotional hurdles, but a hurdle that really puts you on your ass like this while you're so brilliantly trying to build this epic company, it's like you're at two different ends of the spectrum at once. Yeah. How, what kind of advice would you give to someone who really feels like they can't put aside the bad stuff to focus on the good stuff? <sighs> because you had a, you had a lot of, you had a lot of bad stuff working against you. Yeah. I think you just have to channel energy. Like when you have something bad in your life, you can't just say, I'm not going to do that anymore. You have to replace it. Um, so you have to find something good to replace the bad with. And that's, to me, that's really critical and it's really pivotal. Um, so if you're out there and you know, you've just got a lot of distractions and a lot of things that aren't, aren't good in your life, um, you've, you've got to find other things to focus on that bury those things basically. And, and eventually you create new habits in, in the good way that basically overcome and suffocate the bad ones. Um, so that's, I guess that's what I would say. And again, like throw good stuff out there, you know, just like do the right thing, do good things for other people. And eventually it's, it's going to work in your favor. It, it just always does, you know, and you, know, you might, we go back to this whole, everything kind of happens for a reason thing. Like 
I truly believe like I had a snowboard accident that made me not be able to run um, so that I could slow down enough to actually spend more time with my wife um, or who would become my wife. And so I would have more time to focus on building what would become Ultra. Quick break to give the sponsor of today's episode, Pluto Pillow, a little bit of love. I'll be real, I've always been super, super picky about my mattress, but never really thought twice about the quality of my pillows. Pluto Pillow wants to change that, making those one-size-fits-all pillows we've all been buying at the department store for years a thing of the past. The company offers up pillows that individually personalized based on your body stats, how you sleep, and what you like. I took the survey online. It is so easy, and within a week's time, I had a Pluto pillow of my own that makes me look forward to getting into my bed even more than I already do. <laughs> Trust me, you've got to check it out. Head on over to PlutoPillow.com, that's P-L-U-T-O, to answer a quick questionnaire and receive a pillow built just for you and your unique sleep profile. Cool thing the company does, you'll have 100 nights to test your pillow in the comfort of your own bed. Again, PlutoPillow.com. Be sure to enter the code HURDLE for $20 off your purchase. Let's get back to it. So I'm back here with Golden Harper. He is the founder of Ultra. So you've got thousands of orders for shoes. How does one actually get shoes made? Like, who did you know? Who? How did you know who was going to get you the materials? Who was going to manufacture them? Like, how to design them? Nobody. So when there's a will, there's a way, right? And my cousin Jeremy is just one of those people that, like, he's just like fine stuff. I could call him like, he's like MacGyver. And what ended up happening is he found this guy who found these guys. And these guys were, they had just left Nike and Adidas. And we're talking the last maker at Nike, the head of the kitchen at Nike, their advanced concepts team, the guy in charge of Nike University, teaching everyone at Nike how to build shoes, the VP of development at Adidas, the head of CAD at Adidas. These guys are like serious shoemakers. And they heard about what we were doing. And... So I get this phone call and my first thought is like, we're finally getting sued. You know, it's, it's finally happening. Like they're suing us, you know? And they're like, no, it's cool. We left those companies. It's all good. We've actually known for 15 years that shoes are supposed to be built this way. We knew this at Nike. We knew this at Adidas. We had the data. Like we knew shoes are supposed to be built this way. And it's been painful all these years building things we didn't believe in. And we want to make shoes like this too. And so I'm like, okay, why are you guys calling me? And they, they're like, well, we don't know anything about outdoor stores or running stores. And we don't have a marketing story. We're just like old guys that know how to build shoes at the end of the day. And so it kind of clicked. And I was like, all right. And they're like, how soon can you come to, up to Portland? And I was like, we'll be there in a couple of weeks. And we jumped in the car and road tripped up there and, you know, bagged a couple of peaks along the way and, you know, slept in the van and slept on the beach and, you know, it was great. And so these guys had some connections and they found uh, a guy who uh, had connections to factories. Um, and, you know, we told him we were, we were like absolutely committed to building shoes in America and, you know, all this stuff. And after it all came back, he, you know, they, they looked at everything we were trying to do and they're like, okay, you got to readjust some expectations here. You can build shoes in America, but they will be $350 and they will suck. And I know other people who have built shoes in America, and that is actually very true uh, for the most part, which is sad. And I, I dream one day that, that we'll fix that. Um, but right now we don't have a shoe design school in America. You can't go to college in the United States to build or design shoes. Um, so all the expertise is in China, all the, you know, really like Hong Kong area, um, all the materials, all the people, I mean, everything, it's crazy. Um, so he gives us the connection. And then from there, you know, we start, you know, I just tell these guys what I want and they design it in 3D and then, 
we send it over to the factories and we get a first prototype back and it's hideous, but it's totally cool and it works, you know, and, and then it just kind of snowballs from there. Where does the money come from? Uh, where did our money come from? I mean, someone's money came from somewhere. This is the stupidest thing. So we basically go to this guy. We had a friend. This is like one big mafia thing. I know, right? I told you it was a Ponzi scheme when we were selling (laughs) shoes. Like we were having people write orders because the shoes hadn't been built yet. Right. You know, so, so what happened is we had this friend who knew this guy who had started this big company called Zango that became this billion dollar company. And it just What happens. is that company again? Zango. I know. What is that? It's like a nutri, uh, nutrition company. Okay. They build like, you know, they, they started with mangosteen juice and just that kind of stuff. So if you've heard of like noni juice, it's kind of a similar kind of thing. And just all this, you know, nutrition stuff. And he's the one who was really influential with me, like kind of teaching me about the, the, the abundance thing and, and, and a little bit with the karma and whatnot. And so we go to this guy, we don't have any shoes, basically sit down in front of him. We're like, yeah, so um, we cut the heels out of shoes and we expand the toe box and, you know, make them shape like feet and all these injuries go away. And, uh, you know, we think it's, you know, we have all the stages to show that it's, you know, going to fix all these problems. And he's like, okay, you know, we, we talk for 45 minutes. And he just tells us, let me, you know, discuss this with my wife overnight and and I'll call you back in the morning. We're like, okay, cool. And it's like, no chance, right? He calls us back in the morning. He's like, I'll give you your first quarter million. And it was like, okay, you know, didn't ask for an ownership stake, was just like, let's just get this thing going. I believe in what you're doing. And we're like, we didn't even have drawings of shoes. (laughs) How old were you? I was 27. Yeah. I like it's so funny. Like it's I'm hilarious. literally speechless because if that that's outstanding. Yeah. So then we like to to get more. What did your parents think? My your dad, dad's like the running guru. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they they thought like they, they knew the idea worked and they Man. knew it was great, but they were like, it's it's suicide. Like no one's ever done this. No one's ever broken into the, really the the running shoe business for sure. And the outdoor business is really, it's more competitive than cars for crying out loud. And then someone hands you $250,000. Which is like barely enough to even like prototype the first, you know, shoes, basically. You know, it got us through, you know, and it paid for part of an order, basically. The part of the first order. And then after you paid for part of that first order and you started selling them, was it like an instant, this is going to be okay situation? Or were you still like, what the hell are we doing? No, we had this moment after we had paid for part of the first order, we didn't have enough money to pay for the rest of the order. And so the way the factory did it, they were like super nice to us and said, okay, you pay like, you know, X amount up front and then you pay the rest when we finish the shoes, which factories just like don't operate that way. But our connection, our agent, David Hill, um, he he just kind of brokered this deal for us basically super great and it just kind of like worked but at the same time we're sitting here and we didn't have money to pay for more and we're looking at really spending like a million dollars to really get this thing going you know from from start to finish here and we're staring down the barrel of that and we don't have it and we go to angel investors and they're like you've never sold a shoe like you don't even have shoes you know you have a shoe like one that you guys run in and test but you know like you haven't sold a single thing you want us to give you money that's insane and so we're at this point and you know we're trying to get the factory to maybe invest because they think it's a cool idea and i mean literally we we're on the brink of destru- destruction like 30 times where it was like if something doesn't come through tomorrow the whole thing folds you know it's it's all over and everything like We've put everything into this and quit our jobs and, and all this stuff. And, and then the next day, like something would just click, you know, something would happen and we'd, we'd survive for another few weeks. And is know? that something like someone giving you some more money? Um, uh, could be. Yeah. I mean, one of it was Joe Morton, the, the initial investor that started Zango, he, that gave us the first bit of money. He, you know, he kicked in a little more at times and then, um, you know, we had these guys from Nike and Adidas that had come on. They were, you know, they had kind of committed some at, at, at some moment and um and that kind of got us through a few weeks or a couple months until they decided it was too risky um and uh just just crazy stuff so how did it go from being like 
super crazy to something really legit. It's still super crazy, um, <laughs> but it's legit too. Um, crazy thing is since we weren't, since I especially wasn't interested in making money, we actually did an acquisition deal with a company called Icon Health and Fitness um, before we sold our first pair of shoes. So the shoes had been like, we'd pay f- paid for the first por- part of the order. And we'd been talking these guys off and on for nine months and it all just kind of came together. And so um, we did an acquisition deal with them and they basically wiped away all our debt and completed the payment for the shoe order, rerouted the um, shoe order from, you know, my running store, my buddy's basement um, to their warehouse. And all of a sudden, you know, we're technically their employees and here we go, you know, and it was still you know, still super crazy after that, but that took care of the funding piece. And we were spending so much time trying to raise money uh, that it was really nice to be able to focus on other things. And now, I mean, the sneaker is not just one sneaker. It's loads of sneakers. We make, you know, 25 models. Um, We're about half uh, outdoor, like hiking, you know, REI outdoor specialty stores and we're about half running right now. Something I kind of want to rewind back to really quick is you mentioned casually that you used to run like crazy distances. Mm-hmm. And by the way, people run these races. for. <laughs> I feel like, uh, you know, when we're in this world of this health and fitness community, uh, it's kind of commonplace to know that people actually do go past the marathon distance and run 50, 100, even more than that. So you did that kind of stuff. Yeah, a little bit. Talk yeah. to me a little bit about the mental space that comes with running that kind of race, because I feel like, you know, we're just hitting on all of these different challenges in your life that really involve like next level kind of mental capacity. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was obviously very driven from a young age. And, you know, I always say if we were doing it for health, we'd all run 5Ks. And that really is true. If, if you're out there trying to run for health, like 5K train, try to learn to run a fast 5K. Um, but if you want a mental challenge, go run an ultra marathon because it is, you know, it's a lot of physical, but it's a lot of mental too. It's brutal. And my first 50 miler, um, I, you know, it stayed basically up near 11,000 feet for 30 miles and I had altitude sickness and halfway through the race, I'm leading the race, but I'm like, it's, it's over. I'm delusional. Like, you know, there's people asking me if I'm, you know, I can run straight. Like I, if I'm okay, like I can't even think right, you know? And, um, you know, I just, everything in you wants to drop out. And then like you sit down and slam and ensure and eat part of a burger and change your shoes and, and just start trudging back up the mountain, you know, and just see what happens. And then it starts snowing on you. And then you like you know, kind of get into a little bit better place as it starts downhill and then you almost get struck by lightning and then and then, uh, you know, things start to roll and you just kind of like fight through it. And you're like, no, I can do this. We just like one foot in front of the other, just make it happen. And it really is similar to starting the shoe company in that it really was that kind of space where it was like this could be over at any second. Like I'm on the brink of destruction here. And I really, all I can do is just put one foot in front of the other and trust that something good is going to happen. And that, that's all there is to it, you know? I mean, not everyone is uh, in the place in their life to go train for an ultra marathon, but people do all face their own challenges that feel like an ultra marathon. For the people that really feel like they're stuck in the mud training for their proverbial ultra marathon, what kind of uh, advice do you have for someone on that kind of challenge brink? Um, I'd say like a couple things. First, look outside yourself. Like the biggest thing, like I think is important in life is like, it's not about you. Like channel your energy into building up people around you. Do nice things for other people. Do like, like just step outside yourself. You know, people say it, but it's such a big deal is just believing, like believing in yourself, believing in like, you know, if, if you are just positive and throw positive vibes out there and do positive things and put positive things out into the world that it's all going to work out. And I think, you know, it's a huge part of it. And people say like, yeah, well, a lot of people say it's all going to work out and it still sucked, you know? And it's like, well, yeah, maybe it sucks right now, but maybe the reason it sucks right now is because it will change you and make you something, build you into something bigger and something better that helps you dominate later, you know? And so it's really hard because this life is short and it's really easy to think like my life is crap right now. 
Um, and we don't realize like it's just a small moment in time. And even though it feels like crap right now, like you, you can affect it. And we, you know, largely you can control your own destiny to a degree. And sometimes you just have to get through it. And like the ultra marathon thing, just like keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep clawing and, and scratching and fighting until you've changed into something bigger and better. People get to a place where they take a misstep and they feel like they've failed. But essentially what you're saying is that you haven't failed, you've learned a lesson. Yeah, yeah. Every misstep is just a, is just a chance to learn and get better. For people at home who are looking for a sneaker, like what kind of advice do you have for them when they're just like going out? Like what should they be looking for? I mean, everyone's different. Yeah. I mean, obviously I'm biased, um, <laughs> but I can tell you what the research says. And the research says that the shoe that you're going to be the most efficient and least injured in is the shoe that you feel the most comfortable, relaxed, free, barefoot like in. So basically you feel like your foot is unencumbered, completely untethered, toes lost in space, just completely relaxed. Think bedroom slippers. Like, and the shoe, and there've been so many studies done on this and they always come back to what, what the researchers call the comfort filter. If you have those things, you don't need excessive arch support. You know, arch support is something you need because your heel is up in the air and your toes are crowded together and it compromises the integrity of the bone structure. And so all of a sudden, like you need arch. And so, you know, to me, it's, it's fairly simple. Like put on a pair of shoes and actually run on them. Don't ever judge a shoe by how it feels walking. If the shoe doesn't feel too big, it's too small. Like you should have a full thumbnail width between your longest toe and the end of the shoe. Talk a little and bit about that. I feel like people, um, the most common thing that I see with new runners is obviously that black toe. And if you're not a huge runner, black toe is when it's exactly what it sounds like. It's when your toenail turns black because you're putting too much pressure on that area of your foot, hence causing... Yeah. Black tail. Yeah. And me and my buddies run, you know, hundreds of miles and, and long races, you know, up to, you know, hundred or even 200 mile races and don't get black toenails, don't get blisters. But part of that is just having a shoe that's shaped like a foot. And the other part is getting it big enough. And, you know, if you look at it, 80% of people buy their shoes too small. So that's, that's a big number. Four out of five of us are walking around in shoes that are too small for our feet add to that the fact that your foot is shaped mostly like a square and your shoes are shaped triangular or kind of torpedo shaped like that just like compounds that problem and then on the on the female side which is the really sad side of things most women's athletic shoes are just takedowns of men's they just like take shrink some volume off the top throw some pink on it i call it shrink it and pink it and call it a woman's specific shoe and it's bullcrap you know so that's one thing that we totally engineer 100 percent separate is our women's shoes are completely different from the men's but the other thing is the average woman's shoe is two sizes narrower than the average woman's foot so you just think of the chinese foot binding you're doing to your feet you know american style if you will that's something that's real and that's happening and so you, know, you have to account for all that by just above all, like get your shoes big enough, get them relaxed enough. You should feel like, like the shoe's too loose. If it doesn't feel too loose up in the toes, like you're used to having it tight, you know? So it's, it's just not right if it doesn't feel loose up there. And that's huge. Like that makes a bigger difference than anything. And also like giving it some time to get used to that, because if you've been wearing your shoes so tight for so long, when you put on the next size, size and a half up, I mean, when I started running like eight years ago, I was 100% wearing true to size sneakers. I was wearing a 10 and sometimes a nine and a half. I have big feet. Yes, I was wearing a 10, sometimes a nine and a half because I liked how they felt tight on my foot. But then I got the black toenails and yeah. I was like, you might like it, but it's bad. For oh, me. now I wear <laughs> nothing under a 10 and a half. Yeah. I try to stick to the 10 and a half because the actually, 11, the 11 is just too, I can't, I can't <laughs> muster that in my head. That's, that's another thing to me. Like a, it's just a number B, nobody cares. Like, and three ladies, like no guy looks at your feet and is like, oh, she's got big feet. Not happening. Like that just doesn't <laughs> happen. Like nobody even looks there, you know, it's like, a, trust me, it's the last place guys are looking. <laughs> um, and you know, the other thing is like for us at our running store, we knew what sizes sold best our best selling woman's shoe size was nine and a half. So everyone thinks that every lady is a seven that like never happens. That's like once a week, once every two weeks, we would sell a seven where we're selling nine and a half tens all day, every day. You know, so <laughs> talk to me a little bit um, about what your fitness routine looks like now. Obviously you said you're still not at a hundred, um, which has got to be an interesting thing to kind of deal with so many years later. Yeah. I travel enough for work that I'm not super hardcore, but 
uh, I think a lot of people would, would say that I'm pretty hardcore at the same time. So I run three to four days a week. If I'm lucky, I take three months off every year. Always have. I read that the best runners in the world, the Kenyans do that. So I'm like, if, if the Olympians are taking two, three months off every year, I can do that too. So I don't run at all for two to three months. I'm just finishing that right now. What two to three months? Uh, it just depends whatever I feel like, but it's usually winter, you know, um, good timing. Really good timing. Yeah. Can ski and snowboard and stuff. So uh, I do Spartan races as well, obstacle course races. So I've got a whole like rig underneath my deck at home and we're actually putting a climbing wall in right now in the house. Normal human um, activities. Normal human activity, And it's just like fun stuff. Like you get to go climb around walls on your house and do monkey bars under your deck and uh, you know, stuff like that. So I do that and burpees and push-ups and pull-ups and simple stuff. Like it's nothing super complicated. Virtually anybody invites me to do anything athletic. I'm going to be like, yeah, I'll come, you know? So it could be ultimate Frisbee one week, one week, flag football, the next basketball, the next, you know, and I really believe doing those things that do side to side movements are huge for preventing running injuries because most running injuries have nothing to do with impact scientifically speaking they have everything to do with muscle distribution and humans were not built to walk or run on flat ground it is just not how our muscle structure is set up so doing things you know trail running is an example of getting more side to side in um but you know anything with side to side motion is huge for fixing that stuff so that's kind of where i focus everything else on you're just a wealth of knowledge <laughs> <laughs> a huge wealth of knowledge i want to end this on a positive note uh you look back on where you started you reflect on that time that you were selling shoes in the store and you were putting sneakers in the toaster what is one piece of advice you would have given the guy who's slicing up the shoe to put the shoe in the toaster don't stress out too much. Like, like I said, we were on the brink of destruction so many times and I just would get, you know, you just, of course you're stressed cause you love it and you believe in it. Um, but at the same time, like it'll be what it'll be. And like, you just put everything you can into it, put all the positivity you can into it, believe in it, be positive and just like trust that things will work out the way they're supposed to either way. Golden, it was so awesome to have you here. I feel like I've learned so much from you. Thanks so much for coming in. I think we're going to cut it here. Please take a moment to leave a quick review by clicking the link with the description to this episode. We all face multiple hurdles in life. I want to hear about yours. Reach out to me at emily at hurdle.us. Connect with the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at hurdle podcast. And feel free to check us both on social media as well. Golden, what's your handle? At run golden one. And for ultra? At ultra running. Beautiful. Yeah. I'm at Emily Abadi. That's A-B-B-A-T-E. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Another hurdle conquered. See you next time.